This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Before a song is released, a record is produced, or a chorus is written, the musicians that write them think a lot. They live a lot, and they feel a lot. Before the chorus dives into the stories and experiences that shape these artists, and ultimately, the music we hear. I'm your host, Sophia Lepercaro, and this episode's guest is Mystery Jets. Mystery Jets are a three-piece indie band from London who first made a name for themselves over a decade ago. Approaching their sixth studio album, lead singer Blaine Harrison found himself amidst the turmoil of post-Brexit London. While living around the corner from Trafalgar Square, Blaine weaved himself into the crowds of the EU rallies, the Extinction Rebellion, even far-right groups like Britain First and the National Defence League. The album birthed from this period, A Billion Heartbeats, navigates through all of the problems that both unite and separate us, reminding us that we all need to fight for compassion. I have Blaine here now to discuss it further. Hello, Blaine. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. All things considered. I mean, it's it's a kind of strange time that we're going through, that we're living in. But, um, you know, it's it's funny because my life actually isn't that different to what it would be sort of outside of coronavirus and lockdown because I'm I'm lucky that I'm able to isolate at my home which is where my studio is my studio is in the same building as my apartment so I can sort of potter downstairs and if I'm having you know an existential crisis I can just jump in front of a microphone or pick up a guitar and I've got that to put channel my you know frustration and like anger into which is good yeah that's definitely very ideal um if you don't mind me asking uh what part of london are you in now i live in clerkenwell yeah clerkenwell is a nice neighborhood it's mostly not residential but uh there's a lot of offices and tv studios and things around here and we're quite well placed because i've got east london soho camden and kind of the south bank all pretty much equidistant from where I live so it's very central and what's lovely is that the weekends it's kind of like a village because all the offices close up and everyone goes home and it's it's really just um it's really peaceful and I just find I kind of walk around everywhere and it's a whole new way of experiencing London really because I lived in Hackney for 10 years before this Mm. which is much more you know like a residential neighborhood whereas Clerkenwell is yeah, it's it's cool. It's kind of like seeing London for a whole new set of eyes, which which I think I definitely needed when I moved here because, like I said, I'd been living in London for about 10 years, a little bit more than that, and I was sort of starting to think about maybe, like, packing up and finding somewhere else to exist. But a, a very good friend of mine said, well, why don't you just change, try changing your postcode and see what that does and I and I followed his advice and I I've sort of fallen back in love with the city in a whole new way so it's it's been a really nice 
change. I mean, I've had very similar conversations with some of my mates. I remember back in December, I went to New York City. I was there to like network and, you know, meet industry people. And frankly, I had a panic attack because I hadn't been in a mega city since I had lived in London and I felt so overwhelmed. And I remember chatting with a mate of mine and he was, he actually works for Vivo. So very central London. And he's like, no, I live out in the, like, outside of the city because it would drive me mad. And London is just such a particular beast. It's, it is completely insane like any other mega city. But, you know, fortunately, like you have, you can sometimes find your pockets in it that are a little quieter. Or you can find your out. You can. You definitely can. And I think, you know, I think, like, as you mentioned, other sort of mega cities, places like New York, you know, I think Paris, Berlin, to an extent, there is this sort of constant threat of gentrification and um, it becoming harder and harder to exist. And I think that's particularly true if you're an artist, you know, and slightly lower down on the sort of, uh, I suppose, on the food chain in terms of your salary and what you can make from from uh, from your living, you know, from your, from your music, from what you do. And that was something which which really was starting to become quite a grim reality for me and a lot of my friends and quite a few of them actually left London sort of moved to the seaside but I I don't know if it was this like I think because I was born here I, I found it very hard to actually accept that my time here living here was over and so I, I sort of had to try and find a new way of existing and actually that sort of ties into, I suppose, the story of where the album came from because I became a property guardian. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, I don't know if the sort of property guardian scheme exists in the States. Do you, are you familiar with it? I mean, I haven't had to rent a flat yet here. I live with my parents. So to be honest, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's essentially, it's a way of living affordably in, in the city and essentially what it involves is is uh, occupying spaces which would otherwise be converted into luxury flats or office buildings or knocked flat and redeveloped, which is obviously um, constantly happening in a place like London. You know, it's a city which is it's almost living. It's it's sort of constantly um, swallowing itself up and spitting itself out again. It's it very much feels like that. And being a property guardian is a way of I suppose it's particularly good for artists because you end up living in places that have quite open plan spaces where you can work. And, you know, in the building that I live in, we've got filmmakers, we've got um, illustrators, we've got dancers, we've got people who make public art. And we've got this um, great big shared space, which has been amazing, especially because of... uh, you know, being in the band, it means we've got access to space to record in. And we are very fortunate that we were able to build a studio in the basement. So that's where we made the new album. Um, so it's really, it was it was sort of finding this new way of seeing the city that, that in a way kind of allowed us to carry on existing and um, being in a band, really. Mm-hmm. And it must have been a very stark contrast to where you were living before near Trafalgar Square. Well, the, yeah, so so the building that I was living on, Trafalgar Square, it was also a property guardian building. And that was actually 
sort of the beginning of this phase really of of uh making this record and sort of seeing london through a different set of eyes so when i moved into that building um i had like i said i'd been living in hackney for 10 years and i was looking to experience the city in a new way and this opportunity opened up to live in what had been uh film offices right on the strand and the strand is obviously in the middle of theatre land. So it's, I suppose it's equivalent to like Broadway or somewhere like that in New York. It's literally, you know, giant H&M stores and McDonald's and Pizza Huts mm-hmm. and theatres. And um, it's not somewhere that people live. And I think that's one of the reasons I was just so attracted to this space. And um, when I walked in though, I just thought it was a bit more than I could afford at the time, but I, but I just realised that this is the kind of opportunity that sort of comes up once in a lifetime. And I think I also accepted if I was to take on this huge space, I'd need to turn it into something, use it in some way um, for my music, which is very much what happened. So when I moved in there, I started to become very involved in activism and in protests really because the the space was so near Trafalgar Square. So I was essentially diagonally opposite Trafalgar Square. And at the time that I was living there was to the end of 2016 to around the middle of 2017. Yep, I remember that time while I lived in England at that point. So okay, I actually voted in the Brexit vote. I would because I'm Canadian, I was allowed to. Well, that's cool that you're here at the same time. And I think it was really, you know, in all my life, sort of, my lifetime living in London I'd never experienced I suppose the huge political divisiveness that really felt like it it dominated you know the media and also just society living in this country through that Brexit saga and um you know we had Trump's visit in 2017 I think it was Mm -hmm. and we had Extinction Rebellion we had the refugee crisis the refugees welcome um movement which which was a big thing in london and black lives matter and lots of i mean free tommy robinson that was something which um also kind of made its way into our music and so essentially i in that time when i was living off trafalgar square i really used it as an opportunity to kind of explore the culture of protest and use protests as a means to educate myself on how people were feeling around me and how society how the mechanics of society worked and you know I think like a lot of people I felt very um disconnected politically before that I felt like our generation didn't really have a voice in politics I felt that um you know I suppose the there was, you know, so much injustice in society and going to protest and walking alongside people from completely different backgrounds, very different um, experiences of living in Britain really shaped my view and I suppose steered us towards making, you know, a record that was very much about the times we're living in. And that, that was quite a, that was quite a first for us. Mm. And that must have been, I mean, despite the fact that you were clearly very willing to plunge yourself into this, it must have still been very overwhelming. I mean, the the album itself has an almost 
overwhelmed feel at times because it, it just covers so much ground. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, there was a lot going on in that period. And it's it's almost strange having, um, you know, the benefit of hindsight now in, in lockdown because we've got a whole other reality that we're I suppose having to navigate right now but it's it's um it still feels so recent you know like that period it was it was really it really felt like I suppose going back to the beginning of the 2000s something was bubbling up and it was bubbling up and all of these things really felt like um a lot of different cogs in the machinery of society were, were, were grinding to a halt and um, I think I felt like I wasn't seeing that reflected in music and, and in, in art necessarily. I mean it's something that I think fine art world has always um, commented on. I mean if you look at the Turner Prize which is which is quite a um, famous prestigious prize that we have in art in the UK, you know the Turner Prize has, has always commented on what's going on in society for the past 20 years but I think with music there's always this slight fear of alienating an audience and also I think a lot of people perhaps see music as a ripcord as an escape from the reality of um, what's going on in the world around them and I think that's also completely valid and justified and I, I suppose I felt well actually there's so much of that music and if you want to escape there's you know there's like charts there's top 40 in every country for you to kind of like like extract yourself from what's going on in the news in the media but I think also music can provide a social commentary to what's going on and I think when I think back to records that have had a huge effect on me personally an artist that have use their music to talk about the times living in be it Neil Young be it Pink Floyd you know be it The Clash um I think music kind of has this innate ability to to paint a picture which is very different to the the picture painted by what we see on television screens or um on social media or in the news you know because I think what it can do is it can capture the feeling of a time it can it can sort of feel the pulse of an age that we're living in and you know I, I think there's there's nothing more powerful than putting on a record and being transported to somewhere else to another place and I think music really does have something special in that sense you know I feel like if you want to know what living in Thatcherite Britain felt like in 1980 you know put on London Calling it, it will take you there if you want to feel if you want to know what living in multicultural Britain in 1988 felt like put on Culture Club and um, you know I think music has that very special power and I I felt that um, that's the kind of record we wanted to make. Okay so there's definitely a lot that needs to be unpacked in what you said and that's a very good thing. First off as soon as we were talking about like political albums I immediately went to the wall from Pink Floyd um, like thinking about the anti-war message and the men's mental health and just all the things are there. I'm a big Pink Floyd fan. Um, so that's first of all. Second of all, I, you know, I agree with you. Like, I think 
music does need to be an escape sometimes, but it's a matter of balance. You know, albums like yours are really important right now. Then I also think of people in in this sort of era that we're in now, people like Father John Mystery, Father John Misty, sorry, with pure comedy or idols, of course, being really big on being vocal about politics. It's it's good to see that we have both because I think that for both our well-being, but also for our willingness to act and rise up, we need both to to be present. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day, and um, I was feeling a bit miserable, and I think a bit, I suppose, just a bit down and disconnected as a result of, you know, this sort of lack of human inter- interaction that I think everybody's finding quite difficult at the moment. And um, I think it was my girlfriend that said to me, you know, just go and listen to put on like a happy playlist, put on a playlist of your happy songs and take a walk. And I did that. And I felt, you know, it's funny, like when you're feeling down, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I, I don't listen to happy music. I listen to music, which like embraces that feeling. So I'll put, you know, like it sounds cheesy, but I'll put on some Sigur Ross or I'll put on some Nick Drake or some Radiohead, something that actually in a way, it accompanies that feeling. And I think, you know, you mentioned a band like Idols and I think, I think they're a wonderful band. And I think Joe's an incredible spokesperson for, like you said, for, for men's mental health and austerity and, um, you know, the politics of our time. And I think I'm the kind of person that I gravitate towards that. You know, if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling great, if I'm feeling really on top of the world, I'll listen to happy music. But if I'm feeling down, I'm going to listen to music that's going to take me further down. And if I'm feeling angry about what I'm seeing out my window, I, I'll listen to The Replacements or something. You know, I'll put something on which, which kind of empowers that anger, which empowers that feeling. And um, I suppose that's, in my mind, what this record is for. It's an accompaniment for the time um, that we've been living in. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily an escape from the time we're living in. And I like I said, I think that's very valid too. But I think there's there's lots of music which can be an escape. I think, you know, particularly living in Britain, I think Grimes really become the so it's Grimes become the punk of now. It's become the punk music of now because it's addressing what's going on um, in society. And I feel like a lot of guitar music I find very polite, and I I want mm. to I suppose protest against that. <laughs> I do agree with that. Um, I will say I think that punk is actually having a really great moment in the UK and I'm loving seeing punk and grime come together. I think that part of it is really special. Um, you know what, actually, I'm going to go in a bit of a different direction. Um, I'm going to share with you a memory that I have from Trafalgar Square that sort of speaks to the other side of the coin of, of what you were speaking to earlier and also touches very much on the first song in the album Screwdriver. So I think this was the last summer that I was living in London. I was with my best friend who is, she's Muslim and she's Egyptian. This one day, I forget what we were doing. We probably went to a museum or something. And then we walked by Trafalgar Square and there was, I don't know if it was Britain First or the, what's it, not the NDP. There's too many of them. Um, It was one of them. Like you could tell it was a bunch of white, largely bald men. And they were like crawling up the statue in the middle of Trafalgar Square. And it was just one of those visions that really marked me. Like it was very disturbing. 
we were safe because there was, you know, police officers and everything. And I remember we walked to the nearest open station, but it felt very bizarre being with a friend that I knew these people clearly hated. And yeah, and just seeing all of this unfold. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a very powerful image. And, um, you know, I think very right. So you pointed out screwdriver as, as coming from that world and it, and it, and it did. So that song was inspired by Britain first protest. Um, it's got an interesting story. So, so when I was living on the strand, I saw some friends shared this Facebook event and the title of the event was, uh, let's all go and throw bottles of piss at Nazis. That was the title of the event. And I, I looked at it and I just thought, hmm, interesting. Is that how you deal with fascism? I don't know. I'm going to go and find, <laughs> I'm gonna go and find out. And uh, this, that kind of came in this time where um, there's a character called Nigel Farage. Oh, I'm aware of him. <laughs> I'm well aware of Farage. Is a sort of, well, I mean, depending on who you speak to, he's either a white supremacist or he's just you know like a, a patriotic yeah. like stand-up british gentleman um whatever he is he's he's a very divisive figure and at the time when he was rising to prominence it was in the turmoil of brexit in the middle of that whole saga and there was this sort of weekly um occurrence that was happening where people were throwing milkshakes at alt-right figures so he you know he I suppose represented the alt-right in in a certain proportion of the population's eyes and he had several milkshakes thrown at him Tommy Robinson had milkshakes thrown at him who um kind of became a bit of a pin-up boy for um essentially the alt-right in the UK he came from a a party called the EDL which is the English Defence League English Defence League yeah well yeah, and so on this particular day, it was a protest against Britain first, and I decided I'd go along. And I mean, in any other situation, I would, you know, very much be part of the side that would be protesting. But in on on that day, I sort of snuck into the journalist and photographer photographer's pen, which meant I I ended up very close to where the speeches were given, and it gave me quite a rare glimpse, I suppose, into um, that world. And I think really what I was seeking was an understanding of where Islamophobia comes from and where, what exactly the root of that, um, you know, that racial discrimination is. And what I saw wasn't necessarily evil. I didn't see people who, um, who had malicious intent but I think what I saw were people who for decades have had um you know their essentially their livelihood stripped from them by a Tory government who have had the uh the motives of capitalist greed and that you know these these were people from the poorest parts of the country who were fed this rhetoric by tabloids of you know, your jobs are being stolen by foreigners. You know, that's who the enemy is. Um, 
and 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 it's all part and parcel of globalization i think it's actually it's a much bigger picture and the problem is is that the media in this country is so biased you know there isn't really a middle ground you've either got you know like the guardian on the left or you've got the sun and the daily mail and you've got telegraph on the right and it's i think the problem is people really base their views on on these sort of echo chambers that that their news is fed into from and that's sort of magnified by social media and i think it definitely feels that there's a movement amongst young people in this country to find their their news and their views from much more disparate sources and i think that's really encouraging and i think that's really positive you know brexit really brought the worst out in people and um and i don't just mean i don't mean to be uh you know siding with these with these with these aside you know i i'm not here to, to penalize people who vote voted to leave but i think what happened is that it really split families up it split friends friends groups up up and down the country and it became this very toxic environment and it and it really poisoned british society um i mean i'm i grew up in france so i'm i I don't really feel british i feel very much european but at the same time london is my home and the, the london that i love is a multicultural wonderful city you know and i think at its best it's it's one of the greatest cities on earth but for the past five or six years it's kind of been hell living here you know (laughs) yep um you know you've pretty much teed everything up for where i was gonna go next from here because i was gonna move on to petty drone and you've pretty much summarized everything that i've thought like not only listening to that song but making parallels here in the united states with the anti- Um, social distancing protests you know I'm seeing so many people on Facebook admittedly most of my friends are quite left-wing you know I largely am quite left but I'm seeing people be like oh yeah these protesters are like they just want to go get their haircuts and they want this and they have guns and it's like within any like protest of that sort of course is going to be stupidity unfortunately you know here in the states there's a lot of guns but what you were saying about the you know like these Britain first and these right-wing protesters, I'm seeing the same thing here. These are people that have been fed information and that are scared. They want their jobs because they can't feed their families. And I think the big mistake that we've made, and to your point, social media and our algorithms and all these things have made worse, is that if you're on the left or the right, you usually get fed these very specific messages. And so you're always made to feel that the other side is wrong and they are the enemy when really we're dealing with a lot of the same problems, but we're not being taught to deal with them the same ways. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. I mean, I suppose what we're, what we're engaging with, with that song is this idea of echo chambers and, it's still relatively, I suppose, new concept. I mean, I, I, I think in a way the, the technology is more advanced than our tools and our ability to actually deal with it. And, um, you know, surveillance capitalism, in other words, I mean, it's something that Naomi Klein talks about a lot, who's a big hero of mine, um, which essentially comes down to the idea of your whatever you're looking for, whatever you're essentially your browsing history 
ends up dictating the things which are being sold to you via your, you know, via your, um, your search patterns, the algorithms. And what that creates is uh, an experience where you're essentially being watched in this sort of Orwellian uh, <laughs> dystopian sort of mechanism. And I'm not a stoner. Like I, I'm not, I'm not here to like yeah. to go down that road, but I did my degree on this stuff. So I, I, I I'm on the same page as you. Don't worry. And I, I mean, essentially what, what, what it comes down to is that these, these corporations, they're mining our experiences. They're harvesting our information to, to sell us shit we don't need and and they're also using it to sell us opinions and to sell us um you know to sell us news to sell us uh political agendas and that's the world we're living in and i think in a way something that has been really refreshing about the lockdown and about you know what this sort of era of coronavirus has happened is I think a lot of these systems um, have been dismantled. A lot of these systems which govern us, you know, the consumerism, the sort of relentless globalization, even even the sort of uh, aspirational lifestyle of social media, you know, selling us FOMO, like parties we're not at, diets we're not on, holidays we're not on, all that stuff has sort of been cut out and we've actually been afforded this little kind of blissful escape from it all and, and I think I always try to be hopeful I always try to look at the world through a, heart, a glass half full lens and I do feel that when we come out the other side of this we we will have learned something you know and I, I don't think the world should go back to normal because normal wasn't working um, and you know I think something that this has really taught us all I think is just this this need of connection I think what we all need is to is to see ourselves as a whole and um you know a lot of the hostility of politics this sort of endless popularity contest of of, of politics is about is about dividing us into tribes in order to you know to win elections and I think we need to stop seeing ourselves in that way we need to see ourselves as a whole you know we're all citizens of this world we're all neighbors you know as brothers and sisters essentially it's it's really difficult to talk about it without sounding sort of like a new age hippie but <laughs> um I hope you sort of see where I'm coming from of course don't worry about that um and speaking of of that as well that sort of feeling of hope and you know, a desire for unity rings throughout the album, not even getting to the last song, Wrong Side of the Tracks, which is that sort of final message of hope. But I noticed in two different songs, specifically Hospital Radio and Watching Yourself Slowly Disappear, there's a sort of similar refrain that comes up, like a, a will be here. It's it's almost like there's like this unified rallying cry. Was that something that you you wanted to weave through the album a little bit? It is actually, it is, because um, I think music does, does have an ability to make us feel less alone. You know, it's like I was talking about when you're feeling down and you go and put on a Nick Drake record or a Radiohead record. It's comforting to know that someone's been through their version of whatever's happening in you at that particular moment. And I suppose that's something that I've always wanted to communicate with our music 
is that we might you know have a song like screwdriver on the record which has quite a palpable sense of anger about it or um you know uh hospital radio hospital radio does as well to a point as well and at the same time i don't want people to feel alienated by our music i want people to feel comforted because and i think that's especially true when we when we play shows i think um I want people to to leave feeling hopeful and I think you achieve that by making people feel less alone and by sharing in their experiences and saying you know what I've been there um and we've all been there and um that's that's part of the attraction to protest for me as well it's I've always thought of protest as being kind of like they're, they're a bit like festivals, you know, it's a similar atmosphere to a festival, but it's a festival of resistance because when you're in a field or standing in Trafalgar Square with 20,000 other people that have all been brought there by the same force, by the same feeling, you don't feel alone and you feel like actually this, this thing that is actually a common enemy and we can beat this together. And I think um, that's how music can help us it can it can remind us of our interconnectivity and i think that you you brought those in very well through the two music videos that are out for for the album so the one for a billion heartbeats and the one for screwdriver you know screwdriver yes it is one of the more hostile songs on the record but you see a bunch of young people in it from different backgrounds coming together and dealing with mutual frustrations and then in a billion heartbeats which is just a song about being like we all have you know about a billion heartbeats and you know at the end of the day we're all the same and yet you film some of that in trafalgar square which is such a symbol of protest so you definitely have woven that that message through in a lot of different places hmm. i think I think, well, the, the phrase a billion heartbeats came from a book. It actually came from a book which is by my bedside. Um, it's <laughs> Sapiens, which is uh, by Yuval Noah Harari. And it was a, it was a huge bestseller. I mean, I mean lo lots of people will be familiar with it, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure. But it's, there was a particular passage in the book where um, the author talks about mammals essentially having the average number of heartbeats in a mammal's lifetime um is around a billion and i suppose that that stat kind of caught me off guard and i really started thinking about it. i thought it's kind of um it's kind of preposterous and alarming and equally fascinating that you could quantify the amount of heartbeats that you experience in a lifetime you know you could actually boil it down to the number of heartbeats and it got me thinking about well what are you going to do with that time you know when you start thinking about it in terms of units it's it's you know like I suppose it brings into the into question the whole idea of mortality and but also what is our greater purpose and perhaps we can be more helpful to each other perhaps we can be better like I was saying, be better neighbours and be better citizens and um, be more helpful to one another. And I think at a protest that feels like that message really comes alive. And, you know, another way of looking at a billion heartbeats is that when you're in a 
large gathering full of lots of people with a shared goal, it's like a billion hearts beating all together. And actually, you're no longer a sum of your parts. You're part of a greater whole, which doesn't see, you know, the population uh, in terms of tribes, in terms of communities, in terms of people from different ethnicities, religions, races. It just it's it's seeing a body of people who all have a shared goal, and um, I think that's something that the world's been missing for the last few years. You know, there's. I guess this is something that's we touched on far earlier, um, and that's gender roles. There are two songs that stood out to me when it comes to that that theme. Of course, history has its eyes on you, and watching yourself slowly disappear. So I'm gonna start with, you know, I think I'm gonna start with the latter. I know it's about Scott Hutchinson. Um, I remember the day that he passed quite well. I remember being, frankly, a little bit drunk on a couch in Portugal with a friend, and I had known that he had just, dis- like, he disappeared. We were listening to his music in the car on the way to our Airbnb, and I just remember freezing and kind of just staring up at the ceiling, you know, when when he passed. And so, I mean, one, I'm really happy that the song is included on the album, because I think that he's someone that's very important to talk about and his own struggles with mental health as a man are important but also he was someone that was very outspoken about about the men's behavior and health and all these things in his own music Mm, absolutely i mean it's interesting because i had always admired scott's music and you know his abilities as a songwriter from a distance and we'd exchange some messages with one another on Twitter probably about a year before he passed away and um, I think there was something about his songs which beyond I suppose what we were talking about masculinity and showing vulnerability as men there was there was a sort of honesty in there which feels so rare in music and he was someone who's life was in his songs and 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 it's almost the case now when you look back at some of those records it's kind of all there and he ne- there was no separation really between the self and the art his his songs were like pages of his diary and i think i've i've always had a deep deep admiration for artists who are able to do that um because you're really bearing all and you're you're exposing yourself and it, and it takes a huge amount of courage and um, conviction to do that. And I think as a songwriter, that's what ultimately we all want to do. We want to put ourselves into our art. We want our art to be a representation of who we were in this time that we were living on this planet and to be of some use to people. You know, I think music is kind of the greatest medicine that you know humankind has ever invented it's 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 so powerful and i think his music really really was that to so many people and when he passed i think really i wanted to send a flare up to him in musical form and that's what that song watching yourself slowly disappear was i suppose it was my way of perhaps in some way just acknowledging um the beauty that he had shared in his art while whilst he was alive and i think 
you know something that was very real about him as well was 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 the way that he i think he sought to dismantle these the way that men are represented the way that men sort of represent themselves in terms of vulnerability and um i think it's something that that you you know we were talking about idols earlier it's something that i've spoken to joe about as well um and i think that's something that's very big part of who is who he is and what his songs are about is about um dismantling decades of building up these models of what masculinity looks like and what we are and what we're not to talk about and i think it's actually a really exciting age to live in i think because a lot of those characteristics are being stripped away and i think it's it's been a long time coming yeah, I suppose in writing that song, it was a way of me looking in the mirror and saying, well, what's my part in this conversation? And it all feels very new, actually. I mean, I think just the whole um, conversation around destroying looking at gender politics through these binaries is something that we're, we're still trying to navigate in a funny way. And I think, you know, songwriting is, for me, a way of, trying to find a place in that conversation trying to navigate it. And I also, if I'm not mistaken, notice that watching yourself slowly disappear sounds, at least on the chorus, a bit like The Woodpile by Frightened Rabbit. Was that a nod to to Scott by any chance? It was. So when, so, so the, the evening that he passed away, um, I listened to, to that song just over and over and over and over in my head. And you know, part of, I suppose, sending up that musical flair to him was having a little bit of his DNA in that song. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely in there. It, it made me smile. Funnily enough, I've never spent loads of time on Frightened Rabbit. Like, I really only know a handful of songs, and yet I've always been very drawn to them. Like, Acts of Man is one of my favorite songs of all time. I think also as, you know, as a female person, you know, I guess, like, obviously, I, I want to see both men and women be able to grow and have healthier, I guess, interactions with their own gender roles, but also, like, seeing, like, as a woman and seeing, like, the damage that, you know, men have done both to themselves and to to women. It's, like, my favorite line from the song is, and a knight in shitty armor rips a drunk out of her dress. I think, you know, as a woman who obviously knows many other women who have been everything from catcalled to assaulted it's it's such a poignant lyric and i think that again i'm i'm glad that you've you've allowed his torch to be carried a bit because he was a very very important songwriter and gave us a lot of good things that needed to be said yeah i mean i agree absolutely i mean i i struggle slightly with the I mean, it's interesting talking about binaries because it does feel like there's still these very two disparate conversations. There's the conversation around toxic masculinity and there's, and there's conversations around feminism, essentially. And I, I think really they're far more connected than people realise because essentially it comes down to mental health. And I think we're living, we're living in a time where, um, you know, the destigmatization around talking about mental health is completely in flux and again that's something that is that feels so new compared to when I was 
a teenager you know when I was at school there was this very clear-cut like sort of um FHM loaded magazine brand of masculine masculinity you know it was, it was the end of the 90s it was lad culture and it was girl power and they were two um like quite crass sort of cartoonifications of 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 gender essentially and I think we're living in a time now where that's that's been completely dismantled and it's and it's we don't see it you know as uh, in that kind of binary anymore as black and white as that anymore and um you know the other song you mentioned history has its eyes on you as well I think that's a song which is trying to deal in a funny way with the similar things which is about looking at models which have preceded us and it's about saying well you know in the context of that song is a lot of my friends are at the age where they're having children um you know some of my best friends have got young children now um I don't <laughs> I've still got them <laughs> catching up to do um but I think something that I, I really felt watching them and you know going from becoming my friends that I'd get pissed in the pub with to becoming actual adults and like trying to navigate that how to be a parent how to be a responsible like parent figure part of what came into that conversation was well what role models do we want our children to have and I think part of what the responsibility on our generation is is to um is to open our is to open the next generation open our children to you know see the world in a much more open way and to see to see strong figures in terms of you know in terms of young boys I think it needs to be okay for boys to see men crying it needs to be okay to see vulnerability in men and for girls it needs it's it's incredibly important to see strong women in positions of power and um that song was it's almost like a song written for the daughter I haven't had yet you know mm. and um I was brought up, like I was saying, I grew up in France. And I was brought up by my mum and, and, you know, I've, I've got one older sibling, my sister. And they're two of the strongest people I know in my life. And they've they've both been such rocks for me. Um, and perhaps that song was also my way of, I think, acknowledging how important they've been in my life um, in some way. Mm-hmm. I, and I I was thinking to myself that I'm happy that these two songs coexist on the same album because to your point earlier, it's reminding us that those those binaries, one, don't need to exist so rigidly anymore, and two, they can coexist and they can communicate with each other, that men can be allies for women and vice versa as we all kind of figure things out. Absolutely. I yeah. think that's so true. Yeah. And on a lighter note, I think you may have accidentally named that song after a song from the musical Hamilton. Ah, uh, you know what? I, I haven't. I've never seen Hamilton. Yeah, that's why I said accidentally. Because I know it's from a, a protest poster, but the thing is, Hamilton has been used a lot in, in protests because it has a pro-immigrant message, a message of, you know, taking control of your country's future and all these things. So I have a feeling that, that that's where that poster came from. Well, there hasn't been a lawsuit yet, so... Um... <laughs> a Billion Heartbeats is out everywhere you normally get your music. 
This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Sophia LaPercaro, and the artwork is by Meg Welford. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.